If you have your Bibles, uh, please open up to Acts chapter 7. Um, we've, we've been in Acts 6 the last couple weeks. In Acts 6, we met uh, Stephen, who was probably on, on the first deacon team. They didn't call them deacons, but, but they, they're very much uh, serving in a deacon-type capacity. So his role, along with these other six men, was to serve uh, some of the widows in the church that uh, were, were being neglected, and they needed help. So Stephen was uh, described by Luke as a man full of the Holy Spirit, his man full of faith, a man full of grace and power. He was out uh, ministering to these widows. He wasn't just bringing them food. He was, he was bringing them Jesus. He was talking to them about Christ, no doubt, praying with them. We're told that he performed uh, miracles. Um, and, and these things got Stephen on the radar of these different people from these different uh, synagogues, and, and they did not like how many people were coming to trust in Jesus. So they wanted to uh, shut down Stephen and his ministry. So they tried to dispute with Stephen, but they could not match his wisdom because he was full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was giving him the words, just as Jesus promised his followers that, that the Spirit would give them the words when they're brought before authorities. Um, he, he did that in Stephen. They could not match him. So uh, all they could do is trump up these charges against Stephen. Right? They accused him of disregarding the temple. They accused him of disregarding the law and Moses' cu uh, customs. Now, if you've read Acts 7 um, recently, if you, if you remember, this is the, uh, I think this is the longest chapter in the, in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. And it might seem to you like just this history lesson. And then suddenly at the end, Stephen turns the table on the religious leaders. But what he's doing is he's walking them through the history of their people, of God's people. And he's drawing lessons from this history that they certainly had never noticed before. Now, Stephen's speech technically probably is a defense, but it's so much more than a defense. Really, it is a testimony to Christ, right? He, he wasn't trying to just save his own skin, even though he is facing death. Now, at the time, the people were, were so focused on God's law and God's temple, good things to be focused on. The temple was a, a big, big deal to them, but to the point that it was an idol to them. Um, now, the temple was certainly important, right? The, the temple is where God met with his people. And we see um, some really helpful pictures in the Psalms of, of, of how they viewed God and the temple in, in good, right ways. Psalm 27.4 is one example. It says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Right? That is good and right. And you'll notice, I think as you look at it, that it has less to do with the place, the temple, but more to do with, with who the temple is about more to do with Yahweh, more to do about being with God, their father, their creator. But Israel had come to so identify God with the temple that the existence of the temple meant that they were good to go. It meant that they were protected. And its destruction would mean that God had abandoned them, that he'd left them. The prophets railed against this notion. 
Right? God, God wanted them to follow him. God wanted them to trust in him, to know him, to love him. But they came to trust so often more in the temple than they did in God. So Stephen, his speech here is organized in, in four kind of major uh, time periods of Israel's history. First, he starts with Abraham, and then he moves on to Joseph in the time uh, in Egypt. And then thirdly, Moses and the Exodus. And then last, he ends with uh, the establishment of the monarchy with King David and his son, King Solomon. And he makes this, uh, one connection that he makes through these four times is that God's presence wasn't limited to a certain place, to the temple. So let's begin in, in verse one. Uh, and the high priest said, are these things so? And, and so Stephen's been brought, if you weren't with us, he, he's been brought before this council and he's on this, uh, this, this quick thrown together trial. So he says, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So God was with Abraham, even though he didn't have the inheritance yet that was promised, not even a foot's length, it says. What he had though, was that God had promised him. He'd promised not only him, but his offspring. And we remember at this point, as Stephen points out, that Abraham's old and he doesn't have any kids. There, he, he didn't have a hope at this point that, that God would give him offspring until God said that he would. So Stephen goes on to say that God told his offspring that they would be sojourners, that they would be enslaved for 400 years but that God would judge that nation that enslaved them and that God would free them and they would come out and they would worship him. Stephen then goes on, he reminds them of the covenant of circumcision, right? This physical reminder that God had pledged himself to his people and they were pledging themselves to God. So they would be his people, he would be their God. So Stephen's helping us see before the holy place, the temple existed where God met with his people. God had made a holy people. And Stephen does a, an excellent job all throughout this chapter uh, pointing out God's divine initiative. Right? God appeared to Abraham when Abraham was not looking for him, when he did not know of Yahweh, when Abraham was still worshiping false gods. God spoke God sent, God promised, God punished the nation that enslaved, God rescued his people, right? God is at work. God renewed the promise that he made to Abraham, to Abraham's first son, Isaac. And then he renewed that promise to his son, Jacob. And then to his son, or his 12 sons, the 12 patriarchs, which Stephen transitions to Joseph in verses nine and 10. He says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but... God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions God, uh, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And I'm, I'm sure that Stephen's listeners at this point were nodding along in agreement, right? They're, they're fact-checking as he goes and going, yeah, 
he's getting all of this right. Verses 11 and 12. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on the first visit. And you might notice here twice, he says, our fathers. Stephen is connecting himself with these, these uh, fellow Jewish people. But later, he's going to break from that. You'll notice, he'll say, your father, stay tuned for that. But he goes on, uh, talking about Joseph, revealing himself to his brothers that had sold him into slavery. Eventually, his father and the entire family moved to Egypt. And starting in, in verse 9, over, uh, over seven verses, uh, he says Egypt six times. Why is he saying Egypt so much? What he's doing is emphasizing that the land that they were in was not the promised land, and yet God was with them. Right? They didn't have a land yet where they could build the temple, and yet God was with them. Jacob and his sons, they died far from the promised land. Their bones were carried back to the family tomb, but they never got to go in their lifetime back to the promised land, and yet God was with them. And then Stephen transitions to the one God would send to save them, Moses. And by this point, I'm sure you probably remember the story of God's people in Egypt. They had multiplied greatly. They were so big that they were a threat to Egypt. So Egypt enslaves them because this new king, he didn't know Joseph and he dealt shrewdly with the Israelites. But God's promise of rescue was drawing nearer. Verse 19, it says, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And this exposing of the infants, this is an ancient practice to kill babies. They would, they would leave them out in the elements. They would expose them. Uh, how, how terrible. Right? We, we see here, and I won't go on and on about this, but we see here a, a history of God's people caring about babies, caring about uh, those who cannot care for themselves. It goes way, way beyond modern-day politics, back thousands of years. And it was during this time that Moses was born. And you might remember, he was hidden for months. And then he's getting too big to hide. They put him in the basket Put him in the, in, the, in the Nile there, and dis, he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him and, and raised him and educated him with all the wisdom that Egypt had to offer. And this is all God's doing, right? Raising up a rescuer for his people. At 40 years old, Stephen tells us that Moses went out to visit his people. He saw an Egyptian uh, abusing, mistreating uh, a fellow Israelite. And, and what did Moses do? He struck him down. I don't know if he meant to kill him, but he ended up killing him. And, and he, he buries him. He panics. He hides him. Verse 25, it says he, as Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And we see this theme throughout chapter 7 of Israel missing God's rescuer even rejecting God's rescuer. And, and all of these stories Stephen is telling, they ultimately point to Jesus. Even all the stories he doesn't include in Israel's history, they're, they're pointing to Jesus. And, and Stephen is saying to the hearers back then and to us today, don't miss Jesus. Don't miss the rescuer that God has sent to you. Don't reject the rescuer like our fathers did. Verse 26 and on the following day, 
he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Another 40 years passed. Moses sees the burning bush, as I'm sure you've heard before. And it's the Lord. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Verse 33, the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Right? And we're so familiar with that, but don't miss what he's saying here. He's saying God's presence was there. Not in the temple. No, but God's, God's presence was, was there meeting his people. The ground is holy because God is there. Verse 34, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. God saw them. God heard them. He was coming to his people. He was sending a rescuer to them, but this rescuer would be rejected. Verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. I hadn't really thought much about this before, but God did more signs and wonders for Israel before they ever got to the promised land, right? Before they ever had a temple. Clearly, God was with them before the building that they thought so much of even existed. Then in verse 37, Moses spoke about another prophet who was to come. And, and what Stephen is doing here is he's setting up Jesus, right? He's, he's trying to help them see Moses was looking toward Jesus, right? That everything God did in the history of Israel was getting them ready for Jesus. Verse 37, Stephen says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, Right? Moses knew what God was doing. He knew that one would come, that one would be sent from God, the Christ, one like Moses, he said. Right? Moses, the one sent to rescue, was pointing to the one who could finally rescue for eternity. Verse 38, this is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. And again, he's saying, our fathers refused. Our fathers rejected Moses. But then the end of that line there, right? That in their hearts, they returned to Egypt. In their hearts, they were gone. In their hearts, they wanted to go back to slavery, right? They, you might remember they, they were imagining the food better than it was, the melons and the leeks and the onions. So, so what did they do? They turned to Aaron and they say, make us a God. Right? We don't know what happened to Moses. He's been gone like 30 days now. Make us a golden calf that we can worship. Verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered 
a sacrifice to the idol, and we're rejoicing in the works of their hands. And this is a phrase we're gonna hear again in this passage, the works of their hands. And this simply means it's, it's made by man, not by God. Israel wasn't only rejecting the rescuer sent by God, they were rejecting God himself. Verse 42, let's see what God did. It says, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And, and then he's about to go on and talk about the tabernacle, which the tabernacle was a portable temple that traveled with them. So he talks about this tent of witness, verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So the book of Hebrews actually helps us better understand that, that Moses and, and Israel, what they built in the tabernacle and, and what would ultimately be built in the temple later, um, this, was, this was revealed to, by God, uh, to uh, Moses by God. This is, this is a heavenly pattern that he saw. So the, the temple, the tabernacle, they were not the end all. They were, they were just a, a copy. They're pointing to the greater reality. And Stephen reminds them, that they had a long history without the temple, without the tabernacle, right? It wasn't until David and Solomon that the temple was finally built. But Stephen clarifies here in verse 48. He says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God isn't confined to some building. God is so big, he's saying here, that, that the earth would be an appropriate size for his footstool. So you've got this temple thing all wrong, right? This, this good thing that God gave, it's become an idol to them. They're saying you, you worship the building more than you worship the God who the building is pointing to. And we can do that, too. I bet 30 years ago, when this building was brand spanking new, that there were some people in this church that had a hard time not idolizing it, right? And, and we might laugh at that and say, that's ridiculous. We would never do that. But, but we are so good. People are so good at taking good, good things that God gives us and making it into an idol, right? We worship the thing instead of God. Uh, I've been praying actually a lot um, as we're talking about refreshing our interior. We've got our, our first meeting this week with uh, an interior design group. And, and I've actually been, been praying for our hearts more than anything, more than the colors we're going to pick, more than the, the carpet or the chairs or whatever we're going to do. Because we need hearts that, that care more about the gospel than a building that we can be proud of. And, and, and I say that not because our Committees like vain people, they are great. I love them. Um, but, but I've been praying about this because this is what people do, right? This is what God's people do. We take the good that God gives us, right? That is that which is meant to lead us to worship, and we twist it, and we worship it instead. Uh, I'm reading this book right now uh, that's written for people in ministry, ministry leaders, pastors, uh, and I just read a chapter about how easy it is for those in ministry to take, to take church work and make it an idol. And that, 
that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous that we do that, and yet it's so true. This is how skewed we are. Or maybe you remember when we were uh, back in Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus talks about fasting, right? And, and how easy it is for, for people to try and take fasting, and, and instead of doing what it's supposed to do in, in worship of God, we make it about ourselves to make ourselves look godly, right? We can do this with any number of things. We can do this with coming to church or, or a Bible study or whatever church meeting. We can make it into an idol. Is it important to be committed to the regular gathering of the church? Yes. Can we start to see church attendance as something that earns us merit with God? Right? Can we develop pride in how often we're here, how many events we show up to? Yes. Even though this is an important staple of following Jesus, we can so quickly twist it and make it into an idol. This essential part of our worship and growth, we're so capable of hijacking for our own sinful pride. I'm going to borrow an uh, illustration uh, from a friend about this passage. So summer is coming up. Um, I, hope that, uh, I hope that everyone gets to take some kind of break from work, maybe go on a vacation. I know I'm... Uh, I'm dreaming about vacations a lot, I realize. I always have. It's not like a recent thing. It's not like I'm super stressed out or something. I just I like vacations. So Lindsay and I, we've been telling our kids for a couple of years, we are going to get you to a nice, warm beach at some point. Like all they know is the Oregon coast, the Washington coast. They can't imagine like water from the ocean feeling good, right? Like it just, all they know is like, oh, that hurts, but it's kind of fun. Anyway, so... Um, so, so anyway, we're not, we're not going to Hawaii or anywhere this summer, but I'm just telling you, we're, we're dreaming. So maybe, though, for some of you this summer, like, you've got a plan, right? Maybe, you're, maybe you're, we'll say you're going to Hawaii. Uh, you're going to Maui. So you bought your tickets, right? You've looked around for a good deal. You bought good lodging. It's going to be a great place for you, you and your family, whoever you're going with. You've got the rental car lined up. The luau is booked. Uh, you bought the sunscreen that's safe for the coral reefs because that's a big deal. We want to keep those coral reefs good to go. As the day approaches, you pack your bags. The morning of your flight comes. Your friend is at the door early to pick you up, to drive you to the airport. You get to the airport. You're excited. You're in your cheesy Hawaiian shirt. You get up to the ticket desk or your beautiful Hawaiian shirt, whatever. No judgment. Um, you get to the ticket desk, all excited, ready to check your bag, and you can tell on the ticket agent's face that something's not right. You purchase your ticket, there's no doubt about that, but they're frantically troubleshooting, and there's only one solution, free upgrades at first class, right? And you have never been in first class. You can't believe it. When you normally get on a plane, you try to not look at first class so as to tempt yourself. But this time, it's free, so you get on the plane, and it is glorious. The seat is soft. It's massive. The legroom is vast. You have elbow space, right? I hate that on a flight when you're like trying to figure out how you and your neighbor that you don't know are going to share this tiny little armrest, but that is not an issue in first class. Long story short, First class is better than you ever dreamed. This flight to Maui is going to be awesome. First class is so good that your flight is over like that. You realize you're on the descent and you are mourning inside. So you come up with a quick plan. You've got 10 days off. You decide you're going to stay on the plane <laughs> in first class. 
And there are all kinds of problems with that plan. But, but here's, we're just going to cut to the chase. The plane was a vehicle to get you somewhere. The, the plane was to get you to Maui. That was the job, get you to the destination. But the temple was a vehicle to get them to Jesus. The law was, was a vehicle to get them to Jesus. We can look at, at Israel and say, man, how stupid. But we do that. We can take any number of things. We can take Bible reading, and it becomes more about checking it off a list or how many chapters we've read or how long we read instead of meeting with Jesus in the Word. Now, I don't know what Stephen's audience was thinking at this point in verse 50. I suspect that even up to this point, there were some that were intrigued by the dots that Stephen was connecting here. But if anyone was still in agreement with him, that all changes in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Man, Stephen has hard words there for this counsel. Truth, but hard words, a hard truth to swallow. His words were pointed. Before we even get into the, his words, though, I wonder, are we willing, Christ's followers, to speak hard things for Jesus? I'm not saying be a jerk at all, but, but are we willing to speak what, what many people would want to just plug their ears and, and not hear? It is time to speak up about Jesus when God gives us opportunity, even when it might cost us greatly. Stephen Man, he's facing death, and yet he's still willing to speak. My guess is, in this room, probably none of us will die for our faith. Maybe, maybe one. And yet we are so afraid. We're so afraid of what we can and cannot say in our culture, or in the workplace, or in school. Certainly we need to be wise, but we also need to realize, man, that God is with us that God is in control, right? You wouldn't have the job you have if God didn't set it up for you. If, if you lose that job because you talk about Jesus, don't think that God cannot get you another job wherever he wants. So are we ready to talk about Jesus when he gives us the opportunity to stand up for him? He called them a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked came from uh, this picture of like an ox that refused to turn its head and, and, and be led in another direction while like plowing the field or whatever you do with ox. Um, this is exactly what Israel had been called by God through his messengers when Israel was at its worst. And now Stephen calls them the same. So this is a loaded term that Stephen's audience hears because they were stiff-necked toward Jesus or, or away from Jesus. So here, as, as we hear Stephen's beautifully crafted speech, the danger is that we too miss Jesus. And no doubt, in, in a room this size, um, there are probably some people here uh, and, and some people online watching that don't yet trust in Jesus, 
right? Maybe, maybe you believe he existed, but you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. And Stephen's speech is for you, right? The warning to, to the people back then, it's the same to you. Don't miss Jesus. Don't write him off. You may not know it, but God has been working in your life to point you to Jesus, to, to bring the good news before you that Jesus died, that he defeated sin and death so that you can be forgiven. Please don't miss Jesus. Don't be stiff-necked. Get a Bible. Read about Jesus. Ask your questions about Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to point you to Jesus. But Stephen's speech isn't just for those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. Stephen's speech should cause all of us to look at ourselves. Those who heard his speech that day, they didn't. They didn't look at themselves. They assumed that they were right. And that's what we do. Our default is that we are right. Let me tell you uh, something that maybe other parents can relate to. Uh, over the years, your, your kids get Lego sets, right? And, it, and at one point, they're too small to like really be able to do it. It's great when they get older and they can do it themselves. Um, I, like, I like Legos when they're made. I don't like making them. Um, so every time this same thing has happened to me, right? I'm helping my kid with Legos. I'm on like step 42. I'm like sweating. I'd rather, I don't know, do anything else but this. And then I realize a piece is missing. Like, how did Lego mess this up? This is all they're supposed to do is get us the right pieces. And I look around. I'm like, no, it's not there. It's not in that bag or that bag or that. It's not under the table. And I'm like cursing Lego under my breath so my kid can't hear me. And then you know what? My kid finds a stupid piece. Every time. I have four kids. I've lived this scenario over and over again. And I do think, actually, now, if I had to do a Lego set, my kids are old enough now, I don't have to do them anymore, but if they wanted me to and I lost a piece, I think now I've finally learned that I'm the one that goofed up, not Lego. But, but this is our default. We assume that we are right. Is it possible that you're stiff-necked about anything? Or let me rephrase that, where are you stiff-necked? Maybe it's in a relationship and you refuse to take steps to reconcile, right? In your pride, you want them to come back to you. Or, or what about good things that God has given us? We get stiff-necked about these things. Parents, we can get stiff-necked about our kids, right? It's easy for us to make kids into idols. Or we get stiff-necked about money. God has blessed us, given us what we need, so often more than what we need just to survive. He, he blesses us so that we can bless others, but we're so quick to think of it as our money and, and to get greedy. We get stiff-necked about things in church, right? about church ministry, how it should be done, about Bible translations, about uh, elements in the service or the service order or about the way to do Bible studies. And don't get me wrong, there are plenty of wrong ways to study your Bible, but uh, we get stiff-necked over, over things like music, right? We can take these good things that God has given us and, and we idolize, we can idolize those things and suddenly this good thing is more important to us than God. Stephen didn't stop at stiff-necked though. He, he called them uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Yeah, maybe they were physically circumcised, but that physical circumcision was to be this outward sign pointing to an inward reality, a heart that was set apart to the Lord. God said it this way 
Deuteronomy 36, he said, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Paul in Romans 2, he talks about the same thing, right? That, that this circumcision needs to be one uh, inward, one of the spirit. He says it's a matter of the heart, but it's so easy for us. We're so good at slipping into an outward focus. It's easier for us to look the part, do the right things. And I'm not saying that, that obedience doesn't matter. Yes, obedience totally matters, but it's to be this outflow of our heart, of our love for God in response to his love for us, in response to his greatness. God wants your heart. And they didn't have ears to hear and recognize the good news of the gospel. And if, if calling them stiff-necked and uncircumcised wasn't enough, then he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Always, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, is that you? Is that me today? Are we responsive to the Holy Spirit or are you regularly resisting the Spirit? When the Holy Spirit is prompting you to point to Jesus, he gives you an opportunity. Are you following the Spirit in that? Are you trusting the Spirit? When the Spirit convicts you of sin, how do you respond? Maybe he puts it in your heart and your mind, man, I need to confess this sin to, to this brother in Christ that loves me, this sister that, that loves me. Do you shut that down? Right? Do you rationalize why you don't need to confess that sin to them that you can handle it on your own? Or maybe it is the Spirit putting something on your heart that you need to grow in. Right? Maybe, it's, maybe it's praying with people in your house more often together. Maybe it's your spouse or your kids or your roommate. Or maybe it's inviting someone to just start reading the Bible with you. Or maybe, maybe the Spirit for a while has been, been after you to start up a prayer group at your workplace. You know of a couple other Christians, and, and, and the pressure in your company is, is getting more and more against God. Maybe God is calling you to start that up. When the Spirit leads, are you resisting or are you leaning in? And Stephen says to them, you always resist, just like your fathers. Remember, I pointed out earlier, he said, our fathers did this, our fathers did that, but now there's a separation. He says, your fathers killed the prophets. The prophets were sent by God. The prophets played this uh, like covenantal prosecuting att uh, attorney, making a case against God's people and their covenant-breaking sinful ways. Stephen says, your fathers killed them. Your fathers rejected them. Your fathers re rejected and killed the ones that were talking about the righteous one, just like they did with Moses. And then he drops the bomb on them. He, he says, they rejected, betrayed, and murdered the righteous one. God sent the one Moses talked about, the one who would redeem. They had been waiting for generations at this point for the Messiah, and they missed Jesus. He was right there in front of their eyes. And they betrayed him to death. They murdered him. They missed Jesus. Right? This temple that they loved so much was supposed to get them to Jesus. The law was this vehicle to take them to Jesus. Moses was talking about Jesus, and they missed him. They wrote him off, and they killed him. Verse 54, we'll end here. Now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. Man, praise God for people that will talk about Jesus. 
The, the world needs Stevens that will share about Jesus. The church needs Stevens who will help us see how stiff-necked we can be. How can we take what God has given us to, to bring us to Jesus and miss Jesus? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. Oh God, I, I thank you, Spirit, that you empowered Stephen, that you gave him the words to testify, not, not just to these people a couple thousand years ago, but to us today. Spirit, I thank you for, for showing us how, how capable we are of missing what you're doing in our lives and in, in, in pointing us to Christ. Lord, would we not miss you? Jesus, would we, would we, would we fully embrace you, Lord? Would we accept your love for us and love you in return? Would you enable us, Spirit, to walk in step with you in order to follow our Savior? We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.